Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Genesis. It's found on page 2, if you're using a pew Bible, right at the beginning of the Bible. And as you're turning there, let me just say I'm deeply indebted to Dale Van Dyke for many of the insights I'm going to be sharing with you this morning as we look at Genesis 3. Our text is actually Genesis 3.15. We'll be reading verses 1-15 through 15 in a minute. But, you know, as we think about Genesis 3.15, that's probably not... Uh, your go-to text for a good Christmas sermon, I'm guessing. You know, there's probably many other places you would have expected me to turn for a Christmas service. But uh, let me suggest to you that there's many different ways that you could approach uh, the topic of, of Christmas and the Incarnation. You could talk about the historical events, which would might lead us to, to Matthew's Gospel or to to Luke's gospel, but you can also talk about it from a theological perspective. What does that, what did Christ's birth mean? What, why was it so significant? And in that case, you might look at Colossians or Philippians or Isaiah or any number of passages, including Genesis 3.15. And, and I liked uh, Sinclair Ferguson's comment about Genesis 3.15. He said, the entire rest of the Bible is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. How's that for a statement? It tells you the significance of our text today. Now, kids, before we read this, and we're going to read it here in just a minute, you need to understand what has happened so far. God has created the world and everything in it, including uh, Adam and Eve. And he has placed them in the garden, and he has given them everything that, that they needed. And yet, they have fallen into sin. And so now God... Uh, is, is coming to them. And that's where we sort of pick up the story in Genesis 3, uh, verse 1. So let us give attention as we hear God's word this morning. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Now, kids, that's not true. God didn't say that. She sort of added that in. Okay, but she goes on. She says, Lust you die. That's what God said, lust you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of, the, of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, Who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your promise from the book of Isaiah that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And it is our prayer, Lord, this morning that that's exactly what would happen, that your word would stand, that we as your people uh, would, would hear this and take to heart these things as your spirit works in us, uh, Lord, to, to receive your word. But Father, I pray uh, no matter where we're at, no matter what we're going through, uh, Lord, that, that we might maybe take comfort, Lord, that you might challenge us, maybe even rebuke us, if need be, Father, uh, through the preaching of your word. But I also pray, God, that these words may be life to those who do not know you, that they would come to faith and enjoy what it means to be your children. So, Lord, please do your work in our lives. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, when you look at Genesis chapter 3, it explains a lot as to why the world is the way that it is today. And I think most of us know that, at least those maybe who were raised in good Bible-believing uh, homes. But we also see here in Genesis 3, God's gracious response. And I don't want us to miss that, how gracious God is. We have what is known as the euangelion. Uh, it's the 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 first proclamation of the gospel if you want to put it this way the first gospel sermon and God presents this message to a world that's been devastated by sin and and he presents it to a man and a woman who has turned away from the clear commands of God from the God whom they knew and the God whom they've loved now you may wonder why did they do that well we read here in the text that the serpent deceived Eve and suggested that God was not telling the truth, that, that God uh, was withholding good things from her and Adam, and that she could there was a better way. And of course, Eve saw that the fruit was good, and so she took and she ate it with her husband, who was standing there, and Adam, who should have stopped her, who should have been her head, who should have protected her, did nothing. Instead, he partook and he ate as well and then God comes into the garden and Adam and Eve knew that they had sinned against God in a very profound way and they realized that they were naked and they experienced overwhelming shame now the shame was not because they were naked but the shame was because of their sin and, and it was a shame that sort of screamed out to them that they were vulnerable and that they, they needed to hide from the presence of God. And so they do their best to cover themselves and, and they go and they hide because God is in the garden. Because here they are as man, woman, they are polluted, they are filthy, and they could not bear to have God look upon them in all his glory and all his holiness. For they were sinners in his sight. And yet, What's interesting is, is that God didn't just smoke them at that moment in time. He could have, but he, he didn't. Instead, 
What does he do? He calls out to them. And God asks, who told you that you were naked? And of course, it was their conscience, right? Their, their wounded conscience was all they needed to condemn them, to, to, to show them that what they did was wrong. And so then God continues and he said, did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat from? Now, kids, you probably have experienced this. Not that you've ever been in the Garden of Eden or eaten forbidden fruit or anything like that. But how many times kids or, or even you young people, you know, I'm sure this probably so happens in your life. Hopefully not as much as your younger brothers and sisters. But where your parents tell you, whatever you do, don't do, and then they fill in the blank. Whatever you do, don't play with matches. Okay, if you play with matches, this is what's going to happen. Well, you know, for a kid, that's just like an invitation to say, wow, I want to play with matches. I don't want to do anything else in the world, but I want to play with matches, right? And so what happens is you do the, that thing that you're not supposed to do, and yeah, sure enough, you get caught, okay, and you're standing before your parents again, and your parents say to you, did I not tell you not to do this, not to play with matches? Did I not tell you that... that uh, that if you did this, this is what would happen. And kids, don't you remember how awful you felt in that situation as you were standing before your parents? Don't you remember especially having to confess that you just outright disobeyed them and you rebelled against their will? That's a little bit of a taste of what Adam and Eve uh, encountered as they were in the garden. Adam and Eve are completely exposed as disobedient rebels. There, there's no valid excuse. Now there were plenty of excuses floating around, you saw in our text, but they weren't valid excuses. And, and here they are, Adam and Eve, they have made themselves, now think about this, they have made themselves enemies of God. They, they have allied themselves with the devil. And now they stand in judgment of God because did not God say in Genesis 2 17 you shall not eat that is of the fruit for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die and we know that Adam and Eve knew this we knew that it was on their minds because even Eve even made reference to this when she was talking to the serpent and so here are Adam and Eve standing before God in utter tragedy in their crisis and in utter ruin. Here they are, the, 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 the crown of God's creation, and they have abandoned God and joined the enemy of God. And of course, we know uh, that this isn't just the story of Adam and Eve, but this is actually the story of the world, of lost humanity uh, that we belong to. And that's why we experience all the tragedies in our in our lives, every loss that we experience, every heartache, every broken promise, every sickness, un, every uh, unfulfilled longing, all the sin that has been committed against you, every sin that you have committed against somebody else, it all flows out of this one awful moment when the world was lost to sin. And God would have been just, as I said, at that moment in time, just to kill Adam and Eve and to be done away with the whole endeavor. It's not like God needed the created world. It's not like God was lacking something. So he's like, 
I need to create a world. I need to put people in there so maybe I have somebody to talk to or I have, it'll meet some relational need. That wasn't the case. Uh, he, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lived in perfect contentment in fellowship with himself and uh, in, in the, in the three persons of the one God. And so he didn't need that. So God, though, comes before Adam and Eve and all mankind, and he preaches this, one, this wonderful gospel sermon. And there's really two points to the sermon that I want to give you this morning. The first is the antagonism between uh, the woman and Satan. The antagonism between the woman and Satan. Or it's the war or the conflict that goes on uh, before them. Uh, notice that, that God doesn't speak to Adam and Eve first, but he, he, he speaks to the serpent because it was the serpent who brought sin into the world that uh, it was through him that sin came into the world, I guess I should say. Uh, and all the, the devil, uh, as he's uh, doing this work, all he realizes probably at this point in time is that now humanity is on his side. You know, just shortly before that, God and, and Adam and Eve were living in perfect harmony. But now, after the fall, uh, humanity is now on his side. Satan knows who Adam is, that he is the federal head. And he knows that if I can get Adam, you get all of humanity uh, to, to be uh, with Satan. And so humanity has become part of Satan's army in his war against God. You can only imagine how excited Satan must have been in that moment to see that his plan had worked. But the one thing that Satan didn't count on was God. It, it is amazing how many times Satan underestimates God. But he didn't expect God put, to put enmity between humanity and Satan. Look at verse 15, the very first phrase. He goes, I will put enmity, this is God, Speaking to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You see, God takes the initiative in, in this moment when the world is, is in its sin. And is that not the whole story of redemption, that God takes the initiative? Salvation doesn't just happen. You know, it's not that we receive salvation only when we do something, but God is doing something. God is working out His purpose to His praise and His glory. But notice here that what God actually does is he puts enmity between into the world. Now, we tend to think as enmity is a bad thing. Now, some of you younger kids, you're like, Pastor Rick, I have no idea what enmity is. I've never heard that word before in my life. Okay, well, some, some words that are sort of similar, some synonyms to enmity are things like hostility, like hostility between two people. Or animosity. That's another big word, though. So maybe a better word would be hatred. There's hatred between uh, two parties, okay? And so there's, there's, there's hatred between the woman and Satan. Um, now, we would think of that as something to be avoided, as something to be bad. But God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and Satan, uh, between you, which is Satan, and the woman. And he goes on, he says, and between your offspring and her offspring. So not only between the woman and Satan, but all those who belong to the woman and all those who belong to the devil as well. 
And so you see what God does is he creates a race in the world from the woman who hates the devil and, and who hates the works of the devil. And, and God does this because by nature our hearts love sin. We love what is evil. When we are born, that is our natural inclination. Now, some people are more nice about that than others. Some people look like really nice people. But still, what drives them is their own selfish de desires. Even in their kindness towards other people, they are serving themselves oftentimes rather than bringing glory to God. But God is going to preserve a people who are eager to do what is good. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, you can happily testify that this has happened to you. That you are finding that the Spirit of God is, is changing that heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That the things that you used to love, you're beginning to hate and despise. Because God is doing His work of sanctification in your heart. But, if you are just as in love with yourself and the world and all of its pleasures as you were 10 years ago, let's say, then there's something wrong with you. Because that's not the way that the Spirit of God works. He does work to bring about a change in our hearts. But, but if you find within you this growing distaste and hatred of sin, uh, beginning with your own sin. I'm not talking about looking at other people's sins. It's so easy for us to find other people's sins. But if we have a distaste and a hatred for our own sin and we see what it is and what it does, not only in our relationships with other people, but how it damages the name of God. And, and if instead of a hunger for sin, you have a hunger for righteousness, uh, you are eager for Christ to come and, and to be done away with this sin, to set you free. You're looking forward to the day and you're praying, Oh Lord Jesus, come quickly that I might no longer wrestle with this sin. I want to be set free to please you. This is what God wants. And so he comes with his grace of enmity between God's people and Satan. You see, God doesn't give up on the human race, but... Rather, he says that he's going to work through it. Now, I want you to see something, and I didn't catch this. This is something I, I, I saw from Reverend Van Dyke. He, he made the point. He said, you know, he said, you see God's surprising grace here. He said, God takes the first woman who fell into sin, right? And he makes her a key part of redemptive history. He makes her a key part of redemptive history. God is going to use her in a special way. God is setting aside the line of, of Eve's offspring, and God is going to use that offspring to crush Satan's head. And, and evidently, Adam must have picked up on this, because later on, if you look down at verse 20 in chapter 3, you see that, that Adam names his wife. Now, I bet if we had a quiz show, and, and I ask you, you know, who named Adam and Eve, you would most likely say God did. Because I think that's oftentimes what we think. But we see here that God named Adam, but Adam named Eve. And what did he name her? He named her Eve because she was the mother of the living. Now, uh, the first woman could have just as easily been called the mother of the dying because she brought death into the world. But what I want you to see here, what I want you to grasp is 
the grace, or maybe I should rather say the God of grace, meets Eve in her failure and sin, and he exalts her and gives her a name, a name that corresponds with the saving purpose of God in her life. He does that through Adam, but she receives that name. Not focused upon the death she has brought, but upon the life through which God is going to work in her. So you have in this world two kinds of people. There are those who uh, call on the name of the Lord and those who belong to the devil and seek to do his will. And as you look at the unfolding chapters of Genesis, you see this, this dichotomy uh, that's, that's happening here. This, those are the covenant line and those are the line of Satan. You have Abel and Cain. You have Isaac and Ishmael. You have Jacob and Esau. There's this antithesis in the world. Those in Christ and those in the devil. And I, I can't not remember, I never can remember which Puritan used this illustration. Uh, so uh, you can help me out maybe afterwards. But I remember reading years ago where humanity could be sort of defined this way, that there's two giants. And each giant has a, a belt around their waist with hooks on it. And every human is on the, the belt of one of those giants. And one of the giants is the first Adam, and the second one is the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So you have those who have fallen into sin, those who are the line of Satan, who belong to him, but you have those who belong to Christ. That's the definition of humanity. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. It's either you're in Christ or you're not. And, and so there's no mild animosity between the two, no softening. There, there's, a, there's a great animosity, as a matter of fact, between Satan and his followers with those who are in Christ and vice versa. Uh, one author made the point, he said, you know, this, this enmity is, is not like people in a stadium rooting for their uh, favorite team, like when K-State and KU plays. You know, as, as you know, heated as that can get, you know, that's nothing. This enmity, this animosity, is a warlike hostility. And you see that at the end of verse 15. It says, he shall bruise his head, and you shall bruise his heel. And it's not long into Genesis that we begin to see the, the murderous nature of the devil, uh, where Cain is born. And could you imagine, I mean, I, the, the scripture doesn't tell us this, but I could only imagine that ever since that promise that God made to Adam and Eve, that every baby that was born, you just had to wonder if they, the parents didn't think, could this be the one? Could this be the one that God is sending? And maybe she thought that of Cain. Oh, maybe he is the Messiah. Only to find out that Cain killed his righteous brother Abel because he was actually of the line of the devil. And then all through the Bible, we see this battle between those who are gods and those who belong to the devil. And I won't go through all these illustrations, but you could look at Pharaoh. You know, he sought to, to kill the Jewish children. Um, you know, uh, anyway, all kinds of different examples through that. But the reality is this, that God hates sin, but Satan equally despises holiness. And so there is this cosmic battle that goes on. We see that described in Genesis 2. And the disagreement between the two sides 
It's not just over like one issue or two issues or five issues or ten issues. It's actually a conflict of worldviews. It's a totally different way of viewing things. And so, brothers and sisters, there is a clear antithesis in Scripture when it comes to understanding humanity. But there's nothing more that Satan wants than for the church to befriend the world. There's nothing more that Satan wants than for the church to become chummy with the world and do away with the animosity that God has placed there between the two. I mean, if you think about it, uh, even in Jesus' temptation, Satan comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, if you do this, I'll give you this. If you do this, I'll give you that. And if you look at those things that Satan has promised, in an indirect way, they are all sort of addressing the, the mission that God the Father had given the Son. In other words, Satan was offering Jesus a softer way to uh, be able to accomplish his, his purpose. Now, the reality is he would not have accomplished his purpose. And so there would have not been salvation for humanity. But it appeared that way. And, and that's what, what Satan does. You know, uh, Satan's desire is to always soften the relationship between the world and the church. Satan wants to do away with the enmity God has placed there. But we must never forget that that conflict is total and irreconcilable. All of humanity lives in one of two camps. And there's no casual observers in the middle. And, and we need to hear this, brothers and sisters. Because sometimes we think, I think we, we think we could be casual observers. We, you know, we, we maybe hear, you know, something that, 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 that God says and we, we say we like that. And we hear something the world says and we're like, yeah, but that makes sense too as well. Uh, or or we, 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 uh, we, we, we see something, yeah, anyway. But the reality is we're on one side or the other. There's sort of a line that runs through history and you're either on with Christ or, or not. Jesus says no person can serve two masters. You're going to, to serve either mammon, your idols, or you're going to serve God. You're going to love one and you're going to be hostile to the other. Paul says sort of the same thing. He says the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God because you cannot please God if you hate Him. And that's why James says that friendship with the world is enmity. With God is hatred. It is hostility with God. And so we have to pick a side. And I, and I think a lot of American Christians need to think seriously about this reality of antithesis. We've become very comfortable in, in our culture. We, we conform very easy to the, to the shape of our culture. We like what the culture likes. We pursue a lot of the same passions and desires and, and interests of the world. And we can be molded and shaped by the culture in which we live. And, and today we sort of live in a day and a time where the church is sort of being taken aback because the world... Uh, because um, in, in some sense the church has had a position where they have been respected but that has shifted and so now the church is more in a position where it's not as much of an advantage to be a Christian as it maybe used to once be and the church has 
wanted to sort of reclaim some sense of influence in the world. And so what has happened is, is that in many ways, the church has sought to compromise with the world to try to sort of win back their friendship. But we need to be careful, brothers and sisters. We need to pick a side and to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I honestly believe that there's a day that's coming when we will be forced to pick a side. Because as I said, to be a Christian will not be a benefit. As a matter of fact, it not only will not be a benefit, it will only be a liability. And as the pressure increases to conform to societal standards, it will re reveal our true love, what it is that we truly love. And, and the question is, is are we willing to, to be overlooked for promotions or, or possibly demoted simply because we believe what the Bible teaches about homosexuality or the definition of family or any number of other matters that God speaks to? That's what we're facing. Jesus says the world will hate you. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, brothers and sisters, this persecution is by an act of God. Understand that. Persecution doesn't come simply because Satan hates the church. But it's not an accident. It's by God's design that we are persecuted. It's to this that we are destined, that we are called to. This is God putting enmity between you and the devil. And he does that so that you will hate your sin and you will hate whatever is evil. Now, I've been speaking a lot about hating the world and somebody who would be hearing what I'm saying and not understanding the context is to say, see, I tell you, Christians are hateful people. But you understand, I think, what I'm talking about. That, that it's not that we hate the people in the world. As a matter of fact, you love people who are lost. Your heart grieves for them. You yearn for them to be saved. But you do hate the acts of the devil. You hate everything to do with the devil. You take no pleasure in any of his works. Because you realize that you belong to Christ. And so there is this antagonism between the woman and, and Satan. This war, this battle that's, that's going on. And, and, you know, our temptation can be to try to make our lives as comfortable as possible. But that doesn't overlay well over the Christian life because that's not what the Christian life is about. It's a life of enmity with Satan. But the second thing I want us to see is the antagonism between Jesus and Satan. The antagonism between Jesus and Satan. Um, in other words, sort of what's the outcome of this war, this battle that we're having? Well, the outcome is secure and we see that in, in verse 15 at the end where he says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, he, which is singular in the Hebrew, is a man. He'll come and he'll do something in some way that will be a fatal blow to the devil. Uh, now, we do know that the word bruise can also be translated crust. Many older translations would translate it that way. And the difference between what Satan will do and what this person this this messiah will do is the degree of the crushing to be crushed in your heel is painful if you've ever walked outside and barefoot and stepped on a sharp rock or something you understand how painful it can be to to have your heel bruised but to crush your head is a fatal blow 
it's 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 deadly. And so so someone is is coming. This is what this text is saying. Someone is coming at some point in time to do this fatal work on the devil. And and if you read the Old Testament, you'll you'll see different glimpses of what happens uh, to the serpent. You know, I mean, and I don't have time to go through these, but let me just mention them real quick. Uh, just a couple in Judges chapter four, Sisera. Remember, he was the commander of the army of Jabin, the king of the Canaanites who made war with Israel. And and Sisera uh, was in his tent, and or excuse me, in the tent of Jael. And he told Jael, this this lady, you watch the door. I'm going to get some rest. And what does she do? Remember, she takes a tent spike. And what does she do while he's asleep? Yep, right through the temple. You know, she crushes his head. Judges chapter 9, uh, Abimelech is a wicked man. He decides he wants to be the ruler over Israel. So just like Satan, he, he breathes out his murderous hate and he kills 70 of his brothers so he'll have no competition for the, the throne. And what happens to him when Abimelech is attacking a, a city, a wall, a tower? Uh, a woman drops a stone on his head, crushes his head. Think about David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. What happens with Goliath? Kids, you know this. David takes a sling, puts a stone in it, whoo, right in the head. And he kills Goliath and he falls down dead. All of these are snapshots of what this Messiah will do with Satan and his work. And then it's at this point that we read in Matthew and Luke's Gospels that a son is born. The seed of a woman. And, and in a way, unlike any other person is born before this. Jesus is the seed of the woman only. There's no one else that's been born like that. Where there's been a virgin birth. Uh, Joseph was not Jesus' father. The Holy Spirit was the one that caused Mary to become pregnant. And so Jesus had a virgin. It was virgin born. And as Jesus grows, he begins the ministry that the Father, his heavenly Father, had given to him. And the first thing Jesus does is he goes out into the wilderness and he and he has it out with Satan. As a matter of fact, if you read Matthew's Gospel, it says that the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness. God is driving him to, to have this confrontation with Satan. Now, could you imagine if you were Satan and you realized that this this one that was prophesied, this Messiah that was coming, actually ended up being the second person of the Godhead. You know, that, that would be pretty intimidating. But, you know, Jesus begins the attack, right? He puts himself in that position of, of being tempted, and the devil doesn't back down, but he throws everything he has at him. And Jesus responds with using spiritual warfare, with spiritual weapons, namely the Word of God. Jesus says, it is written, it is written. It is written. And unlike the first Adam, Jesus gains the victory. And having won that victory, Jesus then begins to destroy the works of the devil in plain sight. Jesus begins to demonstrate his power as he heals the sick and he casts out demons and he raises the dead and he even calms the storms to publicly display what he's about. And then he goes after the religious leaders. Then he takes them on. And John had said of the religious leaders, you are nothing but a brood of vipers. Kids, you know what a viper is? It's a snake. It's a serpent, right? Thinking back to the garden and the serpent that tempted Eve, right? 
And Jesus even picks up on that and he said, you are murderers and liars, just like your dad, just like your father, the devil. How will you escape the wrath to come? And then as Jesus went to the cross, he was battling, he was battling as he satisfied the law and as he fulfilled all righteousness and as he bore our sin and made atonement for us. As he, an innocent man, a sinless man, laid down his body, his life for us, he disarmed the principalities and the powers. He ripped the weapons out of the devil's hands and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them by his death on the cross, brothers and sisters. And so when Jesus says, it is finished, it was Jesus throwing down the stake of victory. The flag of his accomplishment of salvation. And at that point, the devil is a defeated enemy. He continues to be the enemy, but Judah's lion has crushed the serpent's head. And the battle is, uh, the war is over, but the battle continues. Um, even though Satan is on borrowed time. And so we're still in this war. And we still suffer, don't we? You know, what did Paul say? In Colossians 1.24, but he says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, what he's not saying there is, he's not saying Christ didn't suffer enough, so I'm suffering to make up for that. That's not what Paul means there. What Paul is saying is, I've been be beaten, I've been stoned, I've been shipwrecked, and as I suffer, I'm showing who I belong to, who I follow, and I am engaging in his cause in the same way he did with suffering. And so bruises continue, and God's people continue to suffer. And, and some of you this morning are suffering. Some of you are going through very difficult times. Some of you, if you are not, maybe you know others who are. And as we suffer in following Jesus Christ, the one thing is certain is we know at least what it's about. We, we are waging war with principalities and powers not with flesh and blood we are waging wars with rulers and authority and cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly places and we wage war as those who belong to Jesus Christ and the confidence that we conquer the enemy by faith you see it is by faith that we are that we conquer these things as we trust in God and his promises to know that they are true. You see, oftentimes people uh, go through these things, go through great struggle, go through great sorrow, go through great heartache, and, and they have no idea why God is doing what He's doing. They, they can't fathom how this could be part of a good purpose, they, or how this awful loss or trial could possibly be used. And God doesn't always tell us, does He? He doesn't walk us through and say, well, I'm going to do this and this and this, and then tomorrow I'm going to do that. He doesn't give us a timeline. He doesn't give us a flow chart as much as some of us in here I know would really like that. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He just lets us walk by faith and believe in Him. It says, the old hymn says, faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. Look, if you would, to Revelation chapter 12. 
Revelation 12, verse 11. John, he writes this, he says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers, that's kids, that's Satan, by the way, uh, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And then verse 11, and they have conquered him. How? How did they conquer him? Well, look at the text. It says, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. They placed their faith in God and He was all that they loved. They loved Jesus more than they loved their lives. More than they loved their dreams. More than they loved their families. They loved Jesus more than anything about themselves. They loved Jesus more. And when they came to Jesus, they gave it all to Him for Him to use however He wished. John Williams did the same thing when he was in his early 20s. He, along with his wife, uh, decided to go to the mission field and be missionaries to the Pacific Islands. And, and they were far, far away from their home. Uh, I think in 20 years, they only returned like once. Okay, And you have to remember, this is back in the 1800s. And, and they eventually planted a church in Somalia. But in 1839, there were some new islands that were discovered. And so John and, and another missionary went there. Even though the people were known to be very violent and they were known to be cannibals, they went as well. And they landed on the shore so that they could proclaim the gospel. And they, they lived literally 30 minutes before they were beaten to death and cannibalized. And the people on the ship helplessly watched this happen. And then they went back to Somalia and they told the believers there, and a hundred Samoan believers left their place because they had come to faith under John Williams' ministry. And they went to this island and they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ and they planted a church. And the devil's purpose was not fulfilled. The church grew, it thrived. All because one man did not love his life even unto death. Brothers and sisters, the outcome, your outcome is secure. Paul reinforces this in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. Romans 16, 20, he said, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So we fight this battle and it's a long battle and it's hard and sometimes it's, it's very disappointing and oftentimes it's very difficult and it's very heartbreaking but we have this absolute confidence that the God of peace will soon cross Satan under your feet. You see, you're going to stand one day in the victory of Jesus Christ, knowing that God somehow 
allowed you to participate in this battle to the glory and the honor of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's where we live. And I know many of you in this church, uh, you're struggling. You're going through difficult things. Some of it's illness, some of it's circumstance in your life, some of it's relationship things, some of it's maybe struggles with sin. There's all these things, but that's where we live in the midst of this battle. But as you live your life, do not be ashamed to bear the name of Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed to be counted as one who belongs to Him. Do not be afraid to take a stand with those who are mocked by the world. Do not be afraid to take a stand for what is true and good and right and pleasing to God, no matter what the world says. Do not trade your relationship with Christ like Adam did for that of the world, but follow Jesus. Trust Him, brothers and sisters, through your trials. Live in faith, and one day we will see Him as victors. Amen? Let's bow our heads and, and just take a moment and meditate upon the word that was, was preached and let us silently respond to God accordingly. that some here today are suffering and, and it's hard and maybe for some life is, is scary and there's there's fear there's anxiety there's there's temptation to grieve there's there's tears that are shed but we thank you God that you have not allowed us to lose our faith and through the tears we hang on to a victorious Christ. <laughs> Actually, most importantly, He hangs on to us in those times when life is so difficult. And Lord, we live in a world where there is much anguish as well. And yet, Lord, we thank You that You have spoken Your Word and You have given Your promise and You have sent Your Son to seal those promises with His own blood. And we thank You that while we're still in the battle, that the outcome is sure and, and will soon come to an end. That's, that Satan can't do anything to us apart from your sovereign good pleasure. We are safely in your care. Oh Lord, thank you for that. And we pray that you would give us boldness to speak into this world as those who are living for a world that's yet to come. God, please give us love for lost people. Who are, who are still in darkness and bondage, who need to see the light. And God, may we see Jesus magnified in the saving of sinners. And as we follow you, please forgive us for our embarrassment about Jesus. We pray 
that in our work and in our entertainment and the way that we spend our money, uh, the way we do everything, we pray that Jesus Christ, our precious King, would reign in us. That we would love Him, that we would serve Him, and that we would lay everything down at His feet. Until the day we see you face to face, may you keep us safe, and may you bring us to that day quickly. We pray in your name. Amen.